0: Hello, it's Tuesday, February the 2nd. This is the Andrew Pierce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, we're talking about why high-flying women with high salaries are more likely to fake an orgasm than others. Also, are green cars as green as you think? The Environment Secretary has raised a doubt. Almost 9 billion pounds of public money wasted on PPE purchases since the pandemic began. But first, Boris Johnson. 12 MPs now are calling for him to go, but it's still a long way from 54 who must submit letters to set up a vote of confidence on his future. So the number of MPs now calling for Boris Johnson to go has reached a dozen. Tobias Aylward, the latest, uh, who says he's going to be submitting a vote of no confidence to the 1922 committee. Put in context, Tobias Aylward was a defence minister. He was sacked in Boris Johnson's reshuffle and has been pretty consistent in his criticism of Boris ever since. 54 MPs are required to set up that vote of confidence on the PM's future, 15% of the parliamentary party. Joining me now is Jake Berry. He's the Tory MP for Rosendale and Darwin and he's also the leader of the Northern Research Group of Tory MPs. Mr. Berry, 12 is a long way from 54 and it feels to me when I'm in the Commons talking to your colleagues that the threat to the Prime Minister, if it was very real, has somewhat subsided in the last few days.
1: No, I I think that's uh, an accurate summation of the situation as I read it. I spend most of my time talking to particularly Northern colleagues yeah. in my role as uh, you know, in the Northern research group. I, I just sort of get the feeling that the, the sort of the, the, the overarching view of colleagues is that it's time to move on and also that when it comes to the big decisions, the stuff that really matters when you go out knocking on doors and talking to people, getting COVID right, getting Brexit right, clamping down on illegal channel crossings and migrants, that Boris Johnson, our prime minister, has got those big calls right which is why I think there is a wellspring of support for him still across the Conservative benches in Parliament.
0: He's damaged goods, though, isn't he?
1: Well, I think we'll see the Prime Minister, particularly today, on the launch of the government's uh, sort of iconic, and maybe it's a bit too early to say that, but I I think I will say iconic, levelling up white paper, that this government is moving on to talk about the stuff that matters. He is the right person to deliver that. He is the right person to lead us. And, you know, I'm uh, I'm sure that... uh, You know, focusing on the people's priorities will enable us to um, see the Prime Minister back at his old self.
0: Can he really move on while the police investigation is hanging over him like a sword of Damocles? We know that the Sue Gray report actually ran to 500 pages, but of course only 12 were published. Uh, And we don't know how long this police investigation is going to go on. So much as he wants to bound forward and get on with, as you say, the stuff that matters to people, he's somewhat constrained.
1: Well, I, I really welcome the police investigation. When I talk to my constituents in Rosendale and Darwin, they want everyone in public office to be subject to the same level of scrutiny, in fact, in many cases, higher as they are held to. And that's why investigating whether any crime has been committed is right. I hope the police will you know, conclude that that in a timely manner because it is important, I think, for you know, democracy in this country that we have the opportunity to know all the facts. We have the opportunity to debate them. And crucially that we also as a government and a party and in fact the media have the chance to move on to discuss issues of real import, whether it's the Ukraine leveling up, you know, the vaccine rollout that affect our day to day lives in this country.
0: Can I ask you about um, uh, levelling up? Michael Gove, the housing and levelling up secretary, is disclosing details of the white paper today. It's been a long time coming. It's somewhat delayed. You are representing a northern seat. Much of the levelling up is about helping forgotten parts of the Midlands and the north of England. You probably haven't had a chance to read all the detail. I think it runs to 300 pages. But is broad? is it broadly what you were hoping for from the government?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The northern research ship and I really broadly welcome this. I think there's two elements which we think are particularly uh, of interest. The first is actually setting out those long-term national missions. Now, just to be clear, you know, the income disparity between people in the poorest parts of the north and the richest parts of the south is greater than the disparity between east and west Germany before the Berlin Wall fell. That is the scale of the challenge we face, and I actually think it's a disgrace uh, in what is the fifth biggest economy in the world to have such huge disparity amongst our regions, so setting out those long-term missions to be achieved by 2030, I think shows that the government gets it, it understands the scale of the challenge, and it's up for the fight of reversing decades of underinvestment in communities up and down the UK. So we really welcome that. And the second thing we welcome is lots of the things the Northern colleagues and the Northern Research Group have called for, further devolution. Uh, you know, foreign direct investment flooding into the north of England, more focus on skills, literacy and numeracy, all those things that northern voices have been calling for are reflected and represented in this white paper. And doesn't that demonstrate something that I never tire of telling my colleagues here in the Westminster bubble, that the best ideas to sort out the north are from the north. The best ideas to drive forward left behind communities are in those very communities And I often remind them of something Michael Hazeltine, now Lord Hazeltine, said about my home city of Liverpool. He said, you know, if we're going to have the fight back, we have to draw on the existing pool of talent within our city. And that is what this white paper envisages: drawing on the pool of talent that is across the north and left behind areas to transform lives
0: fascinating that's jake berry who is the conservative mp for rosendale and darwin and who is backing boris johnson to continue as tory leader and prime minister thanks for joining us visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to the andrew Pearce show for free in full along with our other podcasts and video series don't forget to tell your alexa speaker to play daily mail news So a report from the Department of Health has caused huge embarrassment, at least it should have caused huge embarrassment to the government, because it shows almost £9 billion was wasted on dodgy faulty PPE purchases since the outbreak of COVID. The Liberal Democrats have labelled the government's use of public funds as extreme negligence, on an industrial scale. Uh, Christine Jardine joins you now. She's a Lib Dem Treasury spokeswoman and she's the MP for Edinburgh West. Christine Jardine, uh, it's, it's not just on PPE because we, we, we found, didn't we, just a few days ago, almost five billion pounds lost in fraud on the furlough scheme, nine billion here. That makes 14 billion pounds effectively chucked down the drain.
2: Yeah, 14 billion pounds that the government's own advisor said, you know, 15 billion was what education needed to ensure that our children were able to catch up with what they had lost and schools had been unable to provide during the pandemic. And here we, we learn that the government has thrown that amount of money away. Think what it could have done for social care, for hospitals, for, you know, just so many things in this country that they have thrown away the money that could have made it I mean, losing almost £10 billion on PPE contracts isn't just careless, that's criminal, that's outrageous. Billions lost to fraudsters, as you said, and now this. They just cannot be trusted with the public's money.
0: And and the problem with a lot of the PPE was um, uh, some of the companies which were given contracts had absolutely no experience, some were based in interior design, some were known to uh, ministers and special advisers, and a lot of the PPE that was bought was either faulty or was never used before its sell-by date.
2: Yeah, I think there are a lot of questions. There's the money that has to be um, answered for, but there are lots of questions about the process. Just exactly how were people getting contracts? Who were getting contracts? What was the process that ensured that they, they were looking at the right people? We see now that they obviously weren't because they bought stuff, which was useless. They used our money to buy stuff and, you know, How did they decide how to spend it? I think Sajid Javid also, um, although he wasn't the health secretary at the time, he's got to come before Parliament and explain how the government ended up throwing good money after bad and and what he's going to do to get his department in order. Because we know this pandemic is going to be with us for a while. We know that the NHS is under pressure. We need to know that he has sorted it out. And the National Audit Office um, i said that last year, the Department of Health and Social Care had $1.3 billion of spending not signed off by the Treasury. And, you know, here we go, $10 billion was wasted on PPE that was useless. So it's just everywhere you turn at the moment, there's more government incompetence and sort of spendthrift attitudes wasting the public's money at a time when the public really needs that money invested in in so many things to get us through this crisis
3: how
0: did they spend nearly 2.6 billion pounds on items which according to this report um done by the auditor general to the house of commons gareth davis the, the, they spent 2.6 million pounds on items not suitable for use in the nhs how did that happen Oh,
2: I mean, it's incredible. I mean, how difficult is it to know? Now, I know people will say we were in a crisis. We were in a crisis. Decisions had to be made quickly. But how difficult is it to recognise what it is that the NHS needs because it's using it every day and, you know, get more of it? And I remember the time hearing stories about um, people, one, one company who bid for the contract and then were told that masks could be provided at this ridiculously cheap price. And, of course, we now know that, you know, those masks you know, may well have been amongst the things that were useless. They were cheap, but they were useless. So, in the end, you know, it didn't save money. And the, the tendering process, what was going on there, these are the questions that we need asked, that we need Sajid David to come to the house and explain how this money was wasted.
0: Just finally, the, the, the Auditor General to the House of Commons, Gareth he did acknowledge that Whitehall was under extraordinary pressure there was no they had not built up a, a stockpile of ppe which of course they should, have done. Uh, they should but, have done but he adds but he does add but nevertheless uh, the, uh, the 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 department of health was not able to manage adequately the elevated risks hence these huge losses to the taxpayer so although he's cutting them a bit of slack it was under huge pressure of course uh not enough slack to absolve them of blame for losing all this money
2: no and i, I think that's right i mean I think we all recognise, and at the time, I think that the government were um, cut a bit of slack by the public and certainly by the opposition parties because we felt that um, we all were in this together, we needed to pull together, but when we see now um, the mistakes that were made and the money that has been wasted, you know, we want to know why there's only so much slack you can cut them, and what we're seeing is just incompetence. Why, as you said yourself, had they not stockpiled PPE? Why was it none available? And why did they not make sure they bought the right thing? Who were they talking to? Who, Who was advising? Who was making these decisions? And these are all the questions Sajid Javid needs to come to Parliament and explain how the government threw away all this money, which is what they have done, and what he's going to do to make sure that these criticisms are addressed and that God forbid we have to go through this again. But if we do, then the department is in a much better shape to deal with it.
0: All right, that's Christine Jardine. She's a Lib Dem Treasury spokeswoman and she's also the MP for Edinburgh West. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos and opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at MailPlus or me at Tory Boy The Environment Secretary George Eustace is telling us that electric vehicles may not have the impeccably green credentials that we first thought. Mr Eustace says electric cars are often heavier than petrol and diesel vehicles, which could mean their tyres and brakes experience greater wear, leading to shedding of fine particulate pollution. Which is harmful to health. Now, somebody who knows more than most about the environment is Jeff Gazard, um, a veteran environmental campaigner. Uh, Jeff Gazard, is the environment secretary right? And if so, is there anything they can do to make the cars greener?
1: The answer is no and yes. Uh, he isn't correct. Um, when he lumps um, particulate matter and rubber deposits, which essentially are the things that form particulate matter from tyre, he has a point. From tyres, he has a point. He doesn't have a point from brakes on electric vehicles because most if not all electric vehicles, whether they're small, medium and large, use regenerative braking where the um, kinetic energy when you brake goes back to power the battery and the uh, energy use when braking is less than a conventional car. So that isn't correct. That bit of it is not correct. The element of pollution that comes from tires is the same whatever vehicle you use per weight, per type of tire, and how many miles you do. So, yes, on regenerative braking, that's not an issue. The, the kind of pollution you get from discs and the systems on electric cars would be actually lower than on a conventional car. On tire use, he has a point in general. That all tires, whatever the car, do wear, and in that wearing process, let's say over ten or 12,000 miles, the average life of a tire as I understand it, you're going to get bits of rubber and smaller particles produced, particularly if you're driving fast and excessively and wheel spinning and that kind of stuff. And that can add to the health impact of vehicle use, particularly in towns, but, and there's a big but, there are no particular studies that show us the health effect from those kind of uh, emissions, and that is a gap in our knowledge. So the answer is tire wear is a problem. It can produce particulate matter. We need better standards, but that's everything from 38-ton lorries through to electric vehicles.
0: And and according to the, the Secretary of State, electric cars are typically about twenty to thirty percent heavier than their petrol or diesel diesel counterparts. Hence, the pressure on the tyres. Is he right about that?
4: They
1: are heavier, but that doesn't necessarily reflect itself in increased tyre wear. Uh, right. The assumption being that, of course, manufacturers don't know what they're doing. There's all sorts of technicalities here the unsprung weight, the sprung weight, how suspension systems work, and I can absolutely assure you that no like for like weight of vehicle, let's compare a big Bentley Bentayga with a V16 engine with a a Bentley electric four-wheel drive of a similar weight. The tire wear is going to be very similar, if not identical, because the car systems, its suspension components, the type of tires, the grade of tires, the style, the, the tire wall thickness, the material in the synthetic rubber would all be Um, a combination of research from tire manufacturers and the car manufacturer to make sure that tire wear is acceptable first of all to the driver who's paying for it and then secondarily there are noise and not at the moment unfortunately wear and emission standards for tires but they do need to be looked at and that's where the Secretary of State is making a valid point.
0: Uh, he was being questioned by the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee, uh, Jeff, about reducing polluting particulate, which is known as PM2.5. Now yep. I understand that is about one of the most dangerous types of air pollution because it can get into our lungs and cause all sorts of respiratory problems. How yep. close are the government getting, in this country at least anyway, to reducing uh, that sort of pollution?
1: Well, the majority of pollution from uh, those kind of uh, particulates is from industrial use of uh, fossil fuels, home heating, wood-burning stoves, and vehicular traffic. Now, the moment you switch from a fossil fuel engine car to an electric vehicle… (laughs) your particulate matter vanishes from that particular tailpipe exhaust. So switching from a fossil fuel car to an electric car is enormously beneficial. It's a no-brainer. And the element that concerns me about this important but relatively modest impact of particulate matter from tires is the source of these complaints are largely... People who don't want to see a switch from the combustion engine to fossil fuels. That may be think tanks, that may be uh, the right wing press, not the Daily Mail on this issue. Um, but it, it it is a problem of understanding that the biggest thing you can do is literally get rid of your combustion engine car. And that, I think, needs to be emphasized in the process that we're talking about here. So we're talking about, yes, tyre standards can make a small contribution to uh, rubber particles and hence smaller particles. That's nothing negligible compared to the impact of swapping your fossil fuel engine car, whether it's diesel or petrol, for an electric vehicle.
0: All right, and if I could ask you just finally, Jeff, what sort of car do you drive?
1: Uh, At the moment, I don't drive a car, but I'm considering getting a very small, Second-hand electric vehicle. When the prices come down to under about ten thousand pounds, it may be a German one, it may be a Japanese one. There isn't uh, a UK manufactured vehicle that would be in my prime range, price range, or even in my prime range, or even if I'm in my prime range. Yes, but certainly, but certainly, the difficulty is that the second-hand market for electric vehicles uh, is still pretty expensive, and certainly that's something that I'm watching with an eagle eye. The moment they get under ten grand. And I'm going to have an electric
0: vehicle. Fascinating. Let us know when you do. That's the environmental campaigner Jeff Gazard. Thanks for joining us. So he's dressed for sport. He's in his shorts uh, and his football shirt. Matt Gapwood's here. Have you just come off the sports pitch? I've just got off my bike. Okay, c- cycled into work. You know, very good. Doing my very bit, green. Doing my bit very for the green. Yes, that's our deputy sports editor. Now rugby Six Nations. Is it coming up this weekend? Six Nations this weekend, yeah. It starts. I'll be glued. Yes, I know you will. It's very exciting. To to the other
3: channel. Well, yes. um, Well, you'll be missing out. Well, well, it remains to be seen whether you'll be missing out. We hope you'll be missing out because we hope it's going to be fascinating and exciting and good rugby. Because um, certainly from an England point of view, last year it wasn't. So uh, England have a lot to do, but they have concerns over the captaincy. Right Uh, now, normally uh, Owen Farrell will be captain. Obviously, he is out of the whole Six Nations with an ankle injury. Mm -hmm. Um, His deputy has been. In, uh, Courtney Laws who was captain during the Autumn Internationals. He is not going to play either because he's still uh, suffering the effects of concussion that he picked up a couple of weeks ago. So now they've got to choose sort of third choice. So it's between, probably between Tom Curry and Maro Itoje, who... Um, who are reasonably experienced players but you know it's a big deal the captain of the rugby team because you know they've got to lead by example they've got to give the tub thumping speeches etc etc so um, it's not ideal that England don't have someone with sort of established leadership credentials uh, as they go to Murrayfield for their opening game against Scotland on Saturday which is going to be a uh, a tough challenge Scotland are playing particularly well under Gregor Townsend and you know being in the cauldron that is Murrayfield is going to be a tough time. So uh, not ideal for England. And they want to get off to a good start. Last mm. year, obviously, they finished fifth in the Six mm. Nations, only above Italy. They don't want to repeat that. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a big moment. And they could do without these injuries um, clouding their judgment. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, and it starts on Saturday. I know you're going to be glued. Five o'clock. Five, five o'clock. In the morning or in the evening? In the evening. Oh, right. All right. There's yeah. less excuse to watch it. Uh, now, Silverwood's futures in the balance. What sport is he from then? So he's the England cricket coach. Oh, yeah, right. Chris Silverwood. So there's a meeting going on, oh, well, a, a series of meetings going on over the, uh, well, today and the last few days. And that is um, recommendations from the EC board about the way forward for English cricket after the after humiliation the in Australia. that was Australia. So in the the, ashes. Yeah. he could be the fall guy. He could be the fall guy. Um, but they, they need to act quickly because there's a test tour to the Caribbean coming up uh, in March. so they need to get someone you know if they're going to do it and give Mm -hmm. him the push then they need to act quickly and get someone else in um who that could be remains to be seen as there's, there's various candidates like south african coach gary kirsten has put his hand up uh, alex stewart would be keen to take it on an interim uh, yeah. basis you know again this comes down to whether they want an english coach or whether they're happy to go for a foreign coach like they yeah. have in the past um but we expect uh, silverwood to pay the price in the next couple of days for uh, yeah for the um the humiliation that england endured out in australia not all his fault but there were a lot of odd decisions made as we've discussed in the past so um, he looks like he'll pay the price
0: and Finally, Matt, Poulter, that's the golfer, presumably. He's been offered
3: £22 million by the Saudis. For what? To play in their new golf league, I mean, this is an astonishing um, story, a heck of a lot of money. So, basically, the Saudi Arabians are uh, creating a new golf league kind of in conjunction with the Asian Tour, which Mm. uh, traditionally hasn't been the strongest tour. There's obviously the European Tour and the American Tour, which work kind of in conjunction, and that's what all the golfers kind of play on, all the the elite golfers play in those two tours across both. So, they they kind of pick certain uh, events in the European. European tour mm. on certain events in the American tour. The Saudi, Arabian, Saudi Arabians have come along and have created and trying to create a new tour to muscle in on the... Um, now, some would say this is another example of their sports washing, mm. but to muscle in on the game. Now, they're wanting to attract the top players, so they're offering big money. So, Polter has been offered £22 million to join their tour. Now, if he joins their tour, he'll be kicked off the other two tours and told he can't play. He also won't be able to play in things like the Ryder Cup. or oh, the Open. The British yeah, none of that. Right. So, he has to make a choice. £22 million or... You know, and be one of the first people to jump ship and go and join this Saudi Arabian League. Yeah. Or and, stick with...
0: And would he be competing for prize money while he's in the Saudi Arabian League on
3: top of the yeah. 22 million yeah. they'll pay him? Yes. It'd be, I mean, you know, he could be rich beyond his wildest, wildest dreams. Yeah. I mean, now Polter's not short of a bob or two already. Let's not forget sure. that these golfers get paid extraordinary amounts of money mm. as it is. Yeah. Um, it's a reputational thing, really. You know, yeah. this is a guy who's missed a Ryder Cup. You know, he wants to play in one more Ryder Cup. He mm. would then, at some point, be captain of the Ryder Cup mm. team further down the line. Not going to do it, then, is he? Remains to be seen. That's yeah, a lot of money. He, I mean, someone like Lee Westwood, who is at the end of his career, who's, uh, you know, knocking on sort of late 40s. Yeah, he was an old man. Well, I <laughs> know. He, he, you know, he has said, well, if someone offers you 50 million to go and play in one event, you know, how can you turn down that sort of yeah. money? So there are, you know, there are noises being made by some of these elite golfers that they they will go and play in that. But, you know, I mean, I don't know what off the top of my head what Lee Wester's career earnings are, but they will be extraordinary. He will not be, uh, you know, short of a bob or two. Yeah, yeah. So there's big decisions to make. Greg Norman, who is the uh, former world number no. one Australian. Aussie golfer. He is he is the sort of public face of this, and he is saying, "Well, we want to work together with the other uh, with the other tours, and we want it all to be you know we're spreading the game globally." But as I say, other people say, "No, this is just another example of Saudi Arabian sports watching." Yeah, I remember years ago in the, in, in
0: France, being in a little boat, tiny boat, three of us, and um, Greg Norman's uh, yacht sail past oh, right. it was like it was it, it felt like the QE2 it was enormous
3: I can imagine yeah and, I thought you were gonna say he was in the boat with you no 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 and no, Frank no, no.
0: Lampard we could see him on the deck and uh it, I was with Amanda Patel our columnist of course who's an Australian so she waved her towel which was Australian thinking we might get invited <laughs> on the wretched boat sped up <laughs> No such luck so we didn't get we didn't get to uh, see because what's his he has a nickname what's he called the golden something was he did he have a nickname
3: Norman uh, the, uh, shark, the, yeah, the Shark the, sent the to Water anyway. Yes, a bit, yeah. yes. 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 Yeah. Yes.
0: So anyway, that's my that's my Greg Norman story. Is it Greg Norman? Yes Greg Norman story. It's not a very interesting story, but, um, but it's a good story Well, it's more interesting what goes on on the golf pitch. Well, it's really cool. Of course. It's course. called a
3: golf Gold course golf course, Gold course. Gold course. Dear, Oh dear. Yeah well but th- this uh yes you're right that that um, if that's a good story but this is this Saudi Arabia stuff is going to rumble and it's yeah, going to be fascinating story. to see fascinating. what direction people going yeah, whether yeah. they take the uh, whether they take the dollar or not. Yeah, that's because they'd want to take their wives because they're not very welcome in Saudi Arabia, well, are they? and this is the point isn't it? You know there's a there's a tournament that starts in Saudi Arabia tomorrow and and you know again there's a lot of discussion about whether even you know some of the elite players should be playing in that and um and, and their record all ties in with the Winter Olympics of course yeah, which yeah. start in China at the end of the week. Are they? Yeah. God. I'm going to be glue to that too. <laughs> you don't I like do pe- like the
0: curling. That's fun. Yeah, that's fun. I don't understand it.
3: You don't like people shooting down a hill in a tea tray no, on ice? No, 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 no. Okay. no. And I, I really don't think the Olympics should be in China either. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I mean. There's a lot of discussion about whether um, that should be going on there as well. No. So, And the World Cup's going to be in, what is it, Qatar. Qatar? yeah. Madness.
0: That's Matt Gatwood, who says he's going to go and get changed. He's in his sports gear today, and he is our Deputy Sports Editor. <laughs> So now we know it. High-flying women with high salaries are said to be twice as likely to fake an orgasm. That's according to new research. This research comes from the University of South Florida, which quizzed more than 600 women, and it found that those with a good salary but an underachieving husband are twice as likely to fake it. Liz Jones has written about the subject in the Daily Mail today, alongside her ex-husband, and she joins me now. So, Liz, what do you make of it? Is it true?
4: Yeah, it is true, because... You know, if a man is just being pathetic and sleeping all day and doesn't even have a credit card, he only has an electron card and a tube pass, it's not that exciting, is it? You know, he's not like James Bond, is he? He just becomes like your child. And I did fake orgasms all through my marriage, apart from once, when he actually had some success, mainly because he'd been having an affair with an American woman who taught taught him a couple of things.
0: God, how terrible. When did you realise he'd he he'd had the affair with the American woman? Before or after Well, I the just orgasm? thought, how
4: on earth has he learned to do that? Did he Google it? And then I thought, oh, when I found <laughs> out he was having an affair, I thought he must have been taught to do it by somebody else.
1: Penny um, dropped. I certainly
4: didn't teach him to do that. And right. I, I don't think that women should do it. I mean, it's quite shameful admitting yeah. in a national paper that I did it. And it doesn't get you anywhere. And you're supposed to be honest with each other but you don't want to hit the man below the belt. Literally, you want to encourage them because criticizing them doesn't work. You want to encourage them um, because that's the last thing men want to hear. They all think they're studs. My husband thought she was a stud. And I kind of, it's not helpful because women should tell men what they need to do because Mm. otherwise you're gonna pass on a dub to someone else, aren't you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And is it born of resentment and jealousy that the woman, in your case, you were earning more money, more successful, lots of people recognised you, would come and talk to you, and barely even acknowledged his presence, perhaps?
4: Yeah, it's, it's sort of, they resent you, and you resent them as well. I remember working 14 hours a day on a newspaper, and I'd phone home, and he he'd say to me, oh, I've just been having a competition to see which cat has got the best tail. And so you think... That's that's not sexy, is it? That's just pathetic. Um, So you can't, unless you respect a man and you respect each other, it's not going to work in the bedroom. It's not going to suddenly magically work. And also his generation, he was about 30 when we were married, they watch pornography all the time. Really? And so, A, their ardour is depleted somehow. And also they think that women achieve satisfaction instantaneously without them having to do very much. So I think that has a lot to do with it Yeah, because they, 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 it's so easy for them to to watch pornography. But I'm interested to know what you thought of his side of the argument because we had his view as well. We
0: did. We did. And Un, repentant, I thought, really, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, it was nothing to do. It, it, it wasn't his prowess that was at fault. Um is, is, do you know if he's improved now? I mean, is that the sort of conversation you have with your ex?
4: No, well, I, don't, I, don't, I, haven't, really, I haven't talked to him really recently. Um, but he wrote a piece in The Telegraph not long ago um, about how awful women are who worry about yeah. their weight. And in the yeah. stand first, in the heading, it said, the writer, Arthur Dhaliwal, who is currently single. And I thought, yeah, that, that sort of tells you a lot, doesn't it? He's currently single, so yes. he can't be going that well
0: no it can't it can't when we when you fake it if i can take you into your bedroom uh, uh, we're already there anyway liz do is it a is it a meg ryan fake it as in in when harry met sally
4: yeah it's quite meg ryan really you know you're doing your sainsbury shopping list in your head but you're also making the right (laughs) noises that they want to hear it's like You know, when you go up to a horse, you click your tongue because you think that's what a horse wants to hear. It's the same with men. You know what they want to hear because you've seen basic instincts and whatever. And I knew I had to be up early for work the next day. You want to get it over with. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of women do it because it's just boring and they want to get it over with because the man's got no idea.
0: How shattered was his ego when you eventually because you eventually told him presumably when the marriage ended that he'd been uh, he'd been lousy in bed.
4: As you say, they don't believe it, do they? They No, they don't. They don't don't believe it, and they say, "Oh, yes, it, it was fantastic," and they think it's your fault, and you were too inhibited. And that actually, I was less inhibited than he was. Lots of things he wouldn't do. Um, like I asked him to talk dirty to me, please talk dirty to me. I need some. I need something to go on. Yeah. And he says, "Oh, well, you won't hear me anyway, you cloth-eared bint, because I'm quite deaf." He'd have had to shout yes. dirty words. Um,
0: that was romantic him. He could talk
4: dirty. He had no imagination.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, has it put you off sex?
4: No, because my next relationship it was a lot more interesting, and I think that's because we were a lot more equal. And I think that's the key, really, is one of you can't just be dependent on the other one financially. I just don't think it works at all. It's just not particularly when it's the man is dependent on the woman financially Um, because they just resent you and they're just they're just horrible.
0: Fascinating. Liz, fascinating reading it. Even more fascinating, talking about it. You are a star. It's
4: quite a fantastic topic to have. In it's the a great mail, topic. It's really? a, it
0: is a great Daily Mail topic, and I'm sure it's being talked about in lots of homes. And I imagine there'll be a few conversations tonight too, when people <laughs> perhaps go to bed. I imagine, Liz. Uh, so you've um, you've done a reader service here. That is our oh, fabulous Liz Jones, Daily Mail columnist. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the MailPlus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night.